Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 271 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. The 999 operator would never forget the call. The man was desperately trying to explain what had happened and where he was. The operator said, I'm going to need a better location than that, to which the man replied, but there's a train coming. Today's story from Yorkshire is another tale of just how another ordinary day became something very, very different after an incident on the M62 motorway. But before we start, a huge thank you to my supporters at Patreon especially those of you listening to the live recording this evening. The new members are Tom Reed, Michaela Gibbs, Sandy May, Nafisa Jamil, Kelly Cooper, Thomas Power. Your support is really appreciated. Thank you ever so much. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We talk about BetterHelp a lot on this show, and this month we're discussing some of the stigmas around mental health. For example, some people think you should wait until things are unbearable to go to therapy, but that isn't true. Therapy is a tool to utilise before things get worse, and it can help avoid those lows. Another that we've no doubt all heard is that therapy is only for so-called crazy people. Not at all. Therapy doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means you recognise that all humans have emotions, and we need to learn to control them, not to avoid them. BetterHelp is customised online therapy that offers video, phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and it's quick too. You can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So why not give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and UK True Crime podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash truecrime. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash truecrime. Today's show is brought to you by Grind Coffee. Grind helps you make better, more sustainable coffee at home with compostable coffee pods. Filled with organic and fair trade coffee, Compatible with your original star Nespresso machine. Now let's get to the crux. Why do I love Grind so much? For me, it's really simple. It's the best tasting coffee I've experienced. Period. But don't just take my word for it. Grind customers have rated their coffee and their customer service as excellent on Trustpilot, unlike some other big names in the coffee pod space. They don't use any genetically modified produce or harmful pesticides in their coffee and their pods are compostable and 100% plastic free, which means they'll break down in weeks. I also like getting my coffee delivered to my door. As soon as you sign up, you will receive your pink refillable grind tin for free with your first coffee delivery then get monthly refills for your tin in letterbox friendly packaging. You'll need to answer a few questions about your coffee preferences 
and then they'll get their pack tailored to you. Get your first 30 compostable coffee pods for just £5, plus a pink refillable grind tin. When you go to grind.co.uk and use true crime with no spaces at the checkout. That's over 60% off the perfect cup of coffee at home. Just head to grind.co.uk and use the code TRUECRIME. Okay, so let's set quickly some context with our infamous guest of the month and year game. Top of the UK music charts was Hole Again from Atomic Kitten. In the US, it was the legend Shaggy with It Wasn't Me. <laughs> I wonder who that could be dedicated to in January 2022. I can think of a few, can't you? In Australia, <laughs> top of the album charts was the soundtrack to Coyote Ugly. In the news this month, FBI agent Robert Hansen was arrested for spying for the Soviet Union, later being convicted and sentenced to life in prison. The foot and mouth crisis began in the UK. Remember that? And Liverpool beat Birmingham City on penalties after a 1-1 draw in the Football League Cup final. The first cup finals we played at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff since Wembley was closed for redevelopment. Did you guess the month and year? It was February 2001. It was a call that the operator would never forget as the man shouted, but there's a train coming. The 999 operator was heard to say, oh my God, as the man shouts, fucking hell, fucking hell. The screeching of brakes can be heard as the man tells the operator, the train has gone straight through my Land Rover. Moments later, he speaks again. I just got out in time as the train came through. Someone is going to get killed. The man calling 999 was 37-year-old Gary Hart, a self-employed builder from Strubby in Lincolnshire. The night before, there had been no hint of the horror that was to come. Gary was buzzing with excitement. After spending over five hours on the phone to Christine Panther. <laughs> What's her real name? Smith? Jo- oh, okay, Christine Panther. <clears throat> Straight face, Adam. A woman who. <laughs> How do you keep. Christine Panther? Deep breaths. That's <clears throat> again. A woman who had recently split from her husband and eight days previously had answered a personal advert he placed on a dating agency website. After speaking to Christine and sending her numerous text messages, the pair had agreed to meet for the first time the following day. Gary couldn't wait and was so looking forward to it. After Christine went to bed, Gary continued to surf the internet, finally switching it off at 3.58am. But this didn't leave Gary much time for sleep, as he had to work in Wigan the following day a trip that would take between about two and three hours. In fact, he only had about 45 minutes sleep in total when he set off for work early the next morning at about 4.30am. But at 6.10am, when travelling on the M62 near Great Heck between Doncaster and York, Gary lost control of his Land Rover. The car, which had a trailer attached carrying a car that he was transporting, then began drifting around the road before leaving the carriageway of the motorway, plummeting down an embankment and eventually settling on the main Edinburgh to London railway track just in front of a railway bridge. Gary managed to get out of the car unhurt 
and make the call to the emergency services, feeling relieved that he'd escaped serious injury. The 4.45am intercity train service had departed Newcastle on time that morning. On the way south to London, it stopped at York Station at about 5.58. 99 people were on board as the train speeded south at speeds of up to 125 miles per hour. For all the passengers, it was just another trip. They had no way of knowing that a Land Rover blocked the track ahead. Despite a desperate attempt to brake when the driver, 47-year-old John Weddle, saw the Land Rover on the track, it was impossible to stop on time. On the same section of track, but on the adjacent rail, heading north was a freight train. This train had left Immingham on the Lincolnshire coast at about 4.40am and was currying 1,600 tonnes of imported coal in 16 wagons to the nearby power station at Ferrybridge, West Yorkshire and was travelling at about 55 miles per hour. The assistant driver of the freight train, Andrew Hill, later described what happened next. I saw a yellowy flash of light on the tracks in the distance. I then saw a train coming towards us at some speed. I kept thinking it would pass us, it was upright. After a short space of time, I saw a coach of the high-speed train jackknife onto our side of the tracks. I was standing up, holding onto the control panel. We were on a collision course. The next thing I saw was the blue livery of the GNER train. It seemed to fill our view, and we were within touching distance. The last thing I remember was being thrown about. I don't remember much for noise. I remember coming round. I was choking. Everything was in blackness. When the intercity train hit the Land Rover on the track, it derailed to the right of the track but stayed upright, continuing for 500 yards until it was deflected by a set of points. This put the intercity train straight into the path of the oncoming freight train and the inevitable happened. The force of impact meant that one carriage of the passenger train came to rest almost 430 feet away from the railway bridge in a field. One passenger on the passenger service to London, Bob Brooke, was in his seat with a coffee and a newspaper, on his way to take the Eurostar to France on that fateful journey. He described a sudden very sharp breaking, and the next thing he knew he woke up in a total daze. He spoke about the quietness in the carriage and he could see torches, which was the emergency services already on the scene in the early morning darkness. He said, I realised I was lying in the floor of the coach with someone lying on my legs. I was not senseless enough to not really understand what was going on around me. One of his last memories was having his ticket checked by the conductor. This man was 43-year-old Ray Robson. Tragically, Ray was one of 10 men who lost their lives in the crash that morning. Just three years earlier, Ray had received a GNER Golden Crest Award for bravery, having stopped a moving train to save a man trying to jump on it at a station. His sister explained what happened to her brother on his final shift. She said, He'd passed through a carriage door and was flung to the doorway at the other side of the carriage. He was even flung out of his shoes. I take comfort in the fact that his injuries were so severe that he would have died in an instant without suffering any pain. The railway was his life. He loved his job. 
the early train to London was Ray's favourite, and over the years, during shift changes, he did what he could to make sure he kept his place on that run. Ray was single and lived with his devastated mum and aunt in Whitley Bay near Newcastle. He was a sociable man who particularly enjoyed beer festivals, and had in fact enjoyed time with his uncle at a real ale festival in Doncaster just the weekend before he died. Meanwhile, shortly after the collision not far away from the crash site in Brayton, Mary Dunn was woken by the noise of sirens. Turning on the TV, she saw the wreckage of a freight train lying on its side near the M62 outside Selby. Mary froze, as she knew that her 39-year-old husband Steve was driving a freight train that morning. She tried to call Steve on his mobile, but he didn't answer. She later told of what happened next. I was trying to get my son ready for school, sort myself out and answer the phone in between, because by that time it was already on the national news that something had happened. I had people ringing me from all over the place asking where Steve was, if he was alright, and of course at that point I didn't know anything myself at all. It was five hours later, at about 11am, when a railway official broke the terrible news that she'd been dreading, which was that it was almost certain that Steve was dead. Mary then had the heartbreaking job of telling their two sons, 13-year-old Andrew and 9-year-old James, what had happened to their dad, she said. I took my sons upstairs into the first bedroom that we came to. I just sat down with them. I said, I'm really sorry, there's no other way to tell you this. You know, there was a train crash this morning that involved dad's train. I've got to tell you that your daddy's dead and you won't see him again. Mary later took her two sons to the site of the crash. Andrew left flowers at the scene with the message, To Daddy, I know we had our fallouts, but we still loved each other. I promise I will do my best to help Mum, and we'll see you later on. His nine-year-old brother James wrote, Roses are red, violence are blue. I really love you. See you in heaven. Love, James. The other eight men who died that morning were Chris Terry, a 30-year-old father of one and a church warden who lived in York. When his body was found, there were 61 missed calls from his wife, Vanessa. He worked in IT and was heading to London for work, though he'd recently applied for a job near his home, which would have allowed him to see more of his wife and his son, Benedict, who was then aged two. 42-year-old Paul Taylor lived in Newcastle and worked as a buffet chef on the intercity train. 39-year-old Steve Baldwin was a psychology professor at the University of Teesside in Middlesbrough. 47-year-old John Weddle had been driving the intercity train. He was divorced and left behind two children aged 10 and 16. 44-year-old Alan Ensor from York left a wife, Wendy, and two sons aged 11 and 13. 40-year-old Barry Needham was a married freight logistics coordinator from York. 39-year-old Clive Vidgin was a business manager who lived with his mum Joyce and sister Alison in York. And finally, 43-year-old Robert Shakespeare died. His wife Julie, mum of their two sons and two daughters, aged from 9 to 17, said at the time, we were all missing dreadfully. As well as the 10 deaths, more than 80 were seriously injured, some with life-changing injuries. Soon after the crash, the emergency services arrived at the scene. 
The first police officer there was PC Gary Robinson. He immediately saw Gary Hart standing behind the barrier, waving his hands in the air to attract his attention. He took Gary into his vehicle, where Gary told him what he thought had happened. He said he heard a loud bang at the back of his Land Rover and assumed it was a blowout. Gary asked him to take a breath test, which showed no traces of alcohol. Back at the police station, it was put to Gary Hart that the reality was that he'd fallen asleep at the wheel as he had not slept the previous night. Hart said there's no way he could have fallen asleep and forgotten about it. He said that when the incident happened, he'd been driving at 55 to 60 miles an hour in the inside lane, and he recalled having one hand on the bottom of the steering wheel. Rather than sleepy, he told how he was excited, saying, I think it was having spoken to Christine Panther for that long. It was in anticipation of what was to come later in that relationship. I felt alive and really good. It was such a different conversation from any I'd had before. It was a new person and we were getting to know each other. I felt excited and I felt good. I was buzzing. He spoke again about what had happened in his car before the crash, saying, It had a feeling more than anything else. As soon as the noise occurred, everything broke loose. The Land Rover violently veered to the left-hand side of the road. I know I turned the wheel quickly to the right and to the left. There was no resistance at all. It went straight on. It was as though I was on ice. He told how he'd purposefully not braked, as he didn't want the trailer to jackknife. Detectives didn't believe him. They contended that the reason he hadn't braked was because he was asleep and it was only when he left the road that he was jolted back into consciousness. At the trial, which took place at Leeds Crown Court, Gary Hart pleaded not guilty to 10 counts of causing death by dangerous driving. Before Hart gave evidence, his QC Edward Lawson made a plea for Hart to be given a fair hearing. He said he wasn't asking for special favours or indulgence. I'm not asking for sympathy, but understanding and perhaps some allowance. He asked the jury, does it actually matter why he was up all night or what he was doing? It was a fact that he'd gone without sleep that the prosecution relies upon, isn't it? But what he was doing is only really of interest to those who want to make prurient headlines. Whether you approve of what he was doing is really neither here nor there. He's not charged with starting an affair by phone or otherwise illicit or not. This is not a court of morals. You are trying him in relation to the particular offence of causing death by dangerous driving. I suppose back in those days, internet dating wasn't like it is today. Back then, I suppose it was more unusual, whereas today, most people that you know that are single, or if you're single yourself, internet dating is your first stop. He added that the case had led to Hart receiving lots of contacts from, I quote, cranks and loonies. And in a sign of how technology has changed in the last 20 years or so, he mentioned that Hart had even received a death threat via the court's fax machine. The evidence was traumatic, but by the end of the 12-day trial, by a majority of 10 to 2, the jury found Gary Hart guilty of causing the deaths of the 10 people killed in the crash due to his dangerous driving and sentenced him to five years in prison. Hart was noticeably nervous, fidgeting with his hands as the judge spoke of his arrogance in believing that he could safely make 
a 150-mile journey after staying up all night. Some of the survivors and families of the victims were angry that Hart wasn't given the maximum 10 years available for the crime. But the judge told how he had taken into account Hart's suffering and there was a legal limit to how much account could be taken of the cruel coincidences, which meant that his brief time of sleep had such catastrophic results. He told Hart, you might have gone up a bank, turned over and hurt only yourself, or you might have bounced off the central reservation and hit no one. The judge continued, every driver, and I include myself, has been in the situation of feeling sleepy at some time in their lives. Fortunately, most realise that they rest or hand over to someone else. A driver who presses on in spite of everything takes the most grave risk. Your arrogant claim throughout the trial was that you were not like other people, that you functioned differently. It was rudely disproved when it was rejected, very rightly by this jury. The judge accepted some of his mitigation from his legal team, that he was a decent, hard-working and honest man, and the events of that fateful morning had led to a terrible time for his wife Elaine, his four daughters and his small building business. In fact, Elaine, who was living apart from Hart at the time of the incident, had resumed their relationship by the time of the trial. The judge finished by saying, But the most powerful mitigation would have been an admission of responsibility from you, and that has not been forthcoming. Outside court, there was, as you can imagine, lots of moving reaction to the verdict. I will quote just one person here, and that is Lee Taylor, the widow of GNER chef Paul Taylor. She said, Nothing will ever bring Paul back, but I'm over the moon with this verdict. I was physically sick twice yesterday, because I thought it was maybe going to go the other way, but now I'm delighted with what the jury has found. To be quite honest, if Gary Harter put his hands up and said sorry, I might have felt different, but he kept telling lies. He deserves whatever is coming to him, and I hope it's a long time in prison. He knew all along he did it, but he lied all the way through from start to finish, even when in the witness box. I know he didn't intend what happened, but I can't forgive him for not admitting it. I think about Paul every day, and it'll take a long time to get over this, and all we can do now is hope to start rebuilding our lives. There is a memorial to those who lost their lives. It's where the train carriages came to rest. It's a peaceful green spot, and as you stand there, looking towards the railway line, it's hard to comprehend just what happened here. Locomotives were later named after Steve Dunn and Barry Needham, the two Freightliner employees killed in the crash. And John Weddell, who was driving the passenger train, was recognised with a new train driving school named after him in Newcastle. In the opening ceremony, his 16-year-old daughter Stephanie unveiled a plaque dedicating the school to his memory. Gary Hart was released from prison in July 2004 after serving half of his sentence. He moved to Abertillery in Wales to start a new life. But in 2011, on the 10-year anniversary of the rail crash, he caused incredible anger by saying the following in an interview. I believe in fate and I was meant to be there that morning. The accident occurred because I was there. The same for the people that were on the train. They were meant to be there that morning. 
As far as being asleep at the wheel, that's what I went to prison for. It's not what the truth is. No deaths occurred at the point of impact with my Land Rover. The deaths all occurred 700 yards down the track, which I feel other people should have been held accountable for. So in my own head, I've dealt with it in that fashion. I do feel for the families because it was a horrendous, horrible way to go, to die. I was nearly there myself. I know nothing about them. I've absolved myself, not of responsibility, but of knowing anything about them. That would degenerate my life into misery. I survived this accident and I want to survive the rest of my life and remain sane in some way. So what do you make of what we've heard today? This was, of course, a dreadful incident where the 10 men who died left six widows and 13 children. The health and safety executive described the crash as a wholly exceptional accident, and I think it's hard to disagree. If you get a chance, Google the crash scene and see how where the Land Rover crashed was the absolutely worst place for it to hit and leave the carriageway. The health and safety executive concluded that the trains collided at a combined speed of about 140 miles per hour, which is one of the highest ever recorded anywhere in the world for a train crash. And for Gary Hart, it was just a normal day at work. He could never have considered when he left his home these actions would result in so many deaths. I have a degree of sympathy for him. Do you? I'm sure like me, you've driven when you were too tired to do so. And yet through fortune, nothing terrible happened on our journeys. Hart clearly thinks he wasn't at fault. Or is it just a way of coping with his actions? Otherwise, how could you get through each day knowing what you've done? But even if that's what you felt privately, the sheer lack of class and humility for this man not to apologise to the friends and families of those who died and were injured is hard to understand. I think this behaviour causes any sympathy we may have had for him to evaporate. And with such crass and insensitive comments at the poignant 10-year anniversary that brought so much pain to those affected, I think it's wise that Hart has not commented since. Of course, our thoughts are with those who lost their lives in the disaster and the families and friends they left behind. This podcast could easily have lasted six hours to cover more of the personal stories of those affected by the events of the 28th of February. 2001. They won't be forgotten. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspects of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group. It's never dull. And support the show and do the right thing. Keep me producing a podcast for free every week. Please head to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash UK True Crime. There you will find lots of bonus episodes, exclusive content, and of course, like tonight, the chance to watch me stumble my way through a live episode once a month. What more could you want? So on that error-strewn bombshell, that's all from me for another week. So until we speak again on Tuesday, please do take it easy. And despite the others, it's always the others, trust me, I know. Despite the others, 
stay classy. Cheerio for now. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.